remember, I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> October 13th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Annie Goodman, is off for the evening. She is a journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor. We are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. And it is not okay that 72,000 young adults are dying of cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer? Under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show is Having Children After Cancer. For many young adults diagnosed with cancer, the fertility repercussions of treatment are often eclipsed by the primary objective of treating the disease. Join us tonight as we welcome Gina Shaw, Shelly Nolden, and uh, Jennifer Rackman as we explore the options, risks, and self-emotional and psychological decisions of having children after cancer. I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck. So send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag SC Radio. Maureen's not here tonight. If you'd like to leave a message to read. No hiccups. I'm really sorry. You're, oh, you're not allowed to have hiccups? You're human? I, well, I'm not allowed to have hiccups on the radio. Of course not. I'm trying to get... Everyone's giving me these folk remedies for hiccups. I'm going to pull my eyelashes. <laughs> you fail. Yes, totally. <laughs> Well, happy second Monday of October. Yes. And we're very happy not to be doing a pink show, although I did mention the color pink, which is fine, I guess. Yeah, well, it's too late now. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. too late now. I, don't, I didn't see a lot of massive pink backlash this week from the Coleman fracking of the cure thing, which was... Were you yeah, sleeping? it was pretty isolated. It was like a one-day or two-day news stunt. Well, you and I were at a conference. Yeah. We were very busy. We were occupied like 15 hours a day talking to doctors. It was a long... We are. Right. So Maureen, Allie Ward, our VP of Programs, and I were in uh, L.A., Irvine to be specific, something California, mm-hmm. uh, last week attending the second annual meeting of the Society for Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology, yes. which is a super-duper uber science conference mm-hmm. of doctors and researchers speaking all sorts of crazy language that somehow was humorous, but we didn't quite 
understand the Yeah, joke. there's yeah. some really good oncologist jokes that we learned that we don't understand why they're funny. <laughs> I have one disclosure. Yeah. I have an adult oncologist. <laughs> I don't know what that means. And hilarity is every time. Yeah, everyone laughs. They think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. But lots of progress, lots of science, and I, I just put everything in context for our listeners. Part of the reason why we exist is because of a public health report in 2006 which said that survival rates in young adults had not improved in 30 years, now 40 years, because it was in 2004. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the science now is showing that survival rates in young adults are improving for specific cancers, mm-hmm. like ALL. Which this conference addressed specifically. Acute. Two and a half days. Of, of just acute lymphoblastic leukemia. No, it's fantastic, though. It, to bring, They brought in about 200 doctors that wanted to be there to either speak about it or learn about it. They were from all over the world. There were people from Italy, Australia, New Zealand. I know. International. It was fantastic, yeah. But what I found most intriguing was not just the science of current medications and pending medications in the pipeline for trials. They also discussed survivorship issues, mm-hmm. fertility, one of them, yeah. psychosocial issues, uh, cognitive impairment, chemo brain, a whole session on chemo brain, mm-hmm. real incredible science. Yeah, no, yeah. it was excellent. Yeah, really good stuff. Anyway, happy Columbus Day. Yes, if you celebrate, it's great. I will also add that like the, the state of Washington has officially banned Columbus Day. It is now called Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, very progressive of them. It's the new gay marriage laws happening. All the states are going to fall like dominoes now. Yeah, marijuana is going to be in the middle. Yeah. Gay marriage, marijuana, <laughs> end of Columbus. Day. And we'll still have to go to work anyway. Yeah, we still have to be at work anyway. Yeah, why do we do radio show on Mondays? I, historically <laughs> inaccurate, factual stuff, I have no idea. I, I, that's a good question. I don't know why I decided to do it on Monday. It was Monday. That was it. Yeah, I just want to hear myself say Monday 335 times. You practice saying all the days out loud. Tuesday. Wednesday. Sunday. No. We really wouldn't work. But uh, we have a wonderful gentleman here uh, waving from the benches in the studio audience. Mr. Sean Shapiro joined us today uh, as their first full day as our first ever director. Director of Development. Wow, this is the most rousing. That's the rest of our staff clapping. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we have a Director of Development, which is incredibly exciting, and we welcome him aboard. Sean, again, waving from the couch. Can you shout real loud? Yeah! There he is. (laughs) Great. We'll have to develop that. (laughs) Yeah, so if you're listening to this show and you are interested in fundraising for us, you can email Sean anytime at shapiro at stupidcancer.org, and he will help you raise us lots of money. We are a charity. We need money, and there you go. So welcome aboard, Sean, for your first official Stupid Cancer show as my bitch. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. Sorry. We don't have an HR department. <laughs> HR department is standing. And Mallory, hello. How are you? She you, doesn't have a microphone. Oh, you can borrow. You can swivel. <laughs> it's possible. Hello. There you are. I'm here. You were all alone in the office last week, right? I was. Yeah. It was me, myself, and I mostly. Well, I was here sometime. No, you weren't. What did Kenny do all <laughs> <Pardon> the time? <laughs> Kenny was also in LA. Yeah, I looked, I looked busy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You're right? Yeah, fun stuff. So now you're, you're no longer the most recent employee. I'm no longer the newbie. It's kind of exciting. I know. You've graduated down to alumni almost at this point. Close. Getting there. Getting there. Yeah. It's okay. But kudos to you and all your great work. And uh, you're coming up on a, when did you start? January? Part time? I started January. All right, so we're coming yeah. up on a year. That's pretty amazing. Getting close. Wow. Yeah, pretty amazing. Woo-hoo. I heard it five years, you go insane. So. <laughs> <laughs> Were you at Kenny? No, I'm all almost 11 months. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Getting close. Yeah. Insanity. Well, a fifth away from uh, 
insanity. I know. Setting, Just wait so. till you get to like 10 years like me. You lose your hair, you get really old. It's not pretty. You have twins. You have twins. Exactly. Well, before we get to our our, um, our spotlight here, well, one quick bump in the news. Uh, we all, all love the app Think Dirty. We did a show mm-hmm. about the app Think Dirty. It's a great app. Everyone should download it. I think it's iOS only right now, but Think Dirty is the app. It lets you barcode scan household products, cleaners, um, soaps, cosmetics, and it tells you whether they'll kill you or not based on the toxicity of the crap that they're made of. In an interesting twist of fate, I followed them on Twitter, and Think Dirty App tweeted the following, that SC Johnson Wax, for the first time ever, is going to disclose the ingredients of most of their products. Wow. And probably scare the crap out of people to not buy them anymore. Mm-hmm. But they're also making competitive products of the products they're going to disclose. So if they tell you that Clorox will kill you, Clorox Natural won't kill you, which they also make. Cool. It's the Coke Diet Coke family. That's great. Phenomenal. Yeah. So that's, again, progress. Let's hope all the other, uh, well, talking to you, Dow Chemicals, not a sponsor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'll start wearing perfume because I'll know what's in it. Yeah. It's just plants. It's, it's just plants. It's secret trade secrets. Well, we had last trade week we had, was it, when the breast cancer action was two shows ago, right? Or was that last week's show? I wasn't here. It must have been last week. Yeah. So then they talked about how there are all sorts of perfumes being sold for Breast Cancer Awareness Month that have carcinogenic components to it that can link to breast right, cancer. Right, but they don't, to, they don't have to list that they have ingredients, like what their ingredients yeah, are. Didn't they, 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 now, they said last week, like, like it's not a law to have to disclose fragrances. Is that true? No, oh, yeah, it's yeah, trade it's, secrets. It, they don't have to disclose what's in the fragrance. That's ridiculous. Because then well, you just make it yourself. Right, in my bathtub. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to disclose ingredients of, like, foods and no, like, but it's like no one's, why make, no one's making, like, pastas at home just because they see the Ronzoni box and know what's in it. Like, right. I don't think it's going to, like... But how do you, like, so the FDA governs food, but how is fragrance, fragrance doesn't fall into any category? Fragrance, I don't think, falls under the FDA, I think, is why. I think they fall under something else because they're not food or drugs. Right, but yet, like, skin cream, like Jergens has to tell you what's in it, but right. that's not a food or a drug. Well, I think it falls under drugs. Really? I don't know. Skin- I'm making it up. Okay, good job. I'm doing a great job. That's a great talk tonight. Thank you. All right, well, without <laughs> further ado, let's kick off our show tonight with our Survivor Spotlight. Jennifer Rackman, returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show, with a 10-year, count a 10-year ovarian cancer survivor who became a mother through egg donation and surrogacy. She now works as an outreach coordinator for the agency she used for the very surrogacy that produced the child she has, the lovely and talented Jennifer Rackman. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I think this is my third. I think this is my third Cubic Cancer show. Third. Well, we've been on the air like eight years, so odds are, and I've known you like eight years, so yeah, odds are. Yeah, we go way back. So. Yeah. So yeah, I'm happy to be back. Well, no, it's happy exciting. To be the, I've never been in the spotlight before. Oh. I'm not very comfortable with the spotlight. Well, you deserve to be in the spotlight. So um, let's start at the beginning. So first of all, 10 years, big number. Big number. Big number, mm-hmm. 2004. I know your story, like the back of my hand, because we're besties, but why don't you let our audience know your life, you had just moved in with your boyfriend, and you were just a crazy 23-year-old, right? I was I was not so crazy. I was pretty boring as a 23-year-old, <laughs> but life was good. I can't complain about life back then. Um, just moved in with my boyfriend. We had been together uh, several years at that point. So it wasn't a total new relationship, but new to living together. 
and um, was working. I'm a social worker by profession. So I had a couple of years under my belt in a field that I was very excited about. And then I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So it kind of took a tailspin. Yeah. Threw me a curveball for sure. But what were those symptoms? Like what prompted you to even think, you know, 23, you're invincible, right? There's nothing wrong with me. It's just cramps or pain or headache or whatever. What, what, where did that uh, shift in behavior come from? So I'd, I'd been to my primary physician a couple of times throughout the course of a, about a year, year and a half, complaining of night sweats. It's the only symptom that I can really identify that I had that I could now link to what was my, my, my ovaries that were not functional. So I was virtually going into a state of menopause. But when I went to my physician, he did a you know series of random lab work, whatever routine tests, you know, cough, pee in a cup, that kind of thing, and saw nothing unusual, except he said I was a social worker and therefore I must have been just under stress and that that was causing my night sweats. So that's the only symptom that I actually So Xanax had. was your prescription for cancer? Pretty much, okay. pretty much. And then I went to my, I was really, I'm a pretty diligent person with my doctor's appointment. So I was going for my yearly gynecological exam, my routine exam. Thank God my doctor touched upon something that she felt was unusual. So sent me to a battery of tests and a couple of misdiagnoses, little missteps here and there. They thought it was maybe endometriosis, not necessarily cancer. Um, and then, so yeah, it took probably about a year and a half from being somewhat symptomatic to diagnosis. That's crazy. 18 yeah, months. Crazy. Wow. My, dad, my, my oncologist was pretty convinced that my cancer was in my ovaries. She said it was very slow growing and could have easily been there for five to 10 years before, um, before it got large enough to start to influence the ovaries. Right. So this shows about fertility, which is clearly a major issue, mostly for women who get cancer because your, your inner workings are slightly more complicated than us as men. And you wound up having a hysterectomy in the procedure, right? Like you go in the hospital and you wake up with less body parts. I had less body parts. Yeah, it was a slow progression. I kind of lost one ovary, and they were trying. They were trying really hard. I, I made it a point to say that it was one of my priorities to preserve my fertility. So they were hopeful that a remaining part of one of the ovaries might have been salvageable. But when the final pathology came back, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So they had to remove both of them. So you had the wherewithal to mention this to these doctors before you went in for the surgery. Well, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. Like, well, you're about to remove my ovaries, and that's what produces my eggs. So if I can't have them, <laughs> hmm, then where does that leave me? Yes. So I did, I did advocate for myself. In fact, I, I didn't have a full hysterectomy. I, I was able to keep my uterus because I advocated so strongly that I felt, okay, if I... If you're going to take my ovaries, then at least allow me to have an option to perhaps carry down the road. Right. So, I'm, I'm in hindsight, I'm actually impressed that I tried to, you know, steer my because I couldn't understand you, why is for ovarian cancer protocol full hysterectomy? Explain to me how my uterus is therefore connected to my unless there's ovaries. Metastases. Correct. There wasn't. Well, right, and there wasn't. So, right. and they did also test my uterus, and it was fine, um, but it just didn't quite make sense to me. So. I do still have a uterus, a uterus that I chose not to use down the road. Right. Um, I did still have so it. So, again, the young adult story. You're young. You just moved with your boyfriend, who I understand had lost his father prior to that. Only adding, a, within the year before my diagnosis. There was a, a rough uh, a rough patch of time. Right. Me. I mean, so this is, this is 
why is this different when you're in your 20s? Here's exactly why it's different when you're in your 20s. And what was it like for you to be living with each other and this just happening? I'm sure that must have caused some strain. Relationships are difficult enough when you're healthy in your 20s. My husband, now my now husband, then boyfriend, um, said that his, you know, his experience having lost his father kind of prepared him for, it almost felt like there was not enough time in between the loss and then my diagnosis. So it almost kind of like ran one into another, one into another for him. Um, for me, it, he was like, he was almost like my like cancer guru because he was like, oh, I know where to go. We'll go here. We're going to, we, he, he was treated Sloan. I was treated Sloan. There was a bit of a familiarity and a comfort for him, which might sound strange. Yes. Um, but that was how he responded to it. Um, but yeah, it was hard. It was almost, I think in hindsight, we went through a bit of a period of an, in a fog. I don't know how in the present moment we were at that time looking back because it really was kind of like just one trauma after another. So talk us through the next couple of years. You got married. Congratulations. Thank you. You, moved, you were already living together and you start building a life without a child as a prospect until you discover that it might be possible to use alternative solutions. But those aren't typically discussed because you kept going back for checkups, I assume. Mm -hmm. And were there, were there any fertility specialists that work with you as options at Sloan Kettering? There weren't at the time. So now we're rewinding 10 years when I was diagnosed. So it was quite a bit of time ago in, in relation to the oncofertility field that's now developing. So things are a bit different now. But the conversation then when something like, oh, you're removing your ovaries, okay, so therefore you'll have to use an egg donor and possibly a surrogate if you want to have children or adoption. So those were the three, the three options. Use an egg donor, try to carry myself, or use a surrogate as well, and or perhaps adoption. But it really was not much of a conversation, I would say, at the time of diagnosis, and even fast-forwarding to several years, um, it wasn't a conversation with my doctors. It really wasn't a conversation between my husband and I. It it became a bit of an elephant in the room. I think that we became fearful of it. Like, let's not bring it up because it might upset somebody, upset me, upset my husband. So I think we walked, we tiptoed around it for some time. Um, but as we got older, you know, we were then approaching our late 20s, early 30s, more of our close network started having children. And it became something that wasn't so ignorable anymore because it was, I remember the day my very best friend told me that she was pregnant. And it was like, this is going to be such a part of my present world. I was able, I mean, I skipped baby showers. I, you know, skipped birthday parties just to not have it in the forefront of my mind because it was too painful. Yes, of course. Um, but then we started to explore. We finally, I remember um, I went back to counseling, something I did when I was in treatment, and I felt like I needed some time to sit with it separately from my my husband, from right. my inner circles, and um, started to say, like, started to feel safe enough to peel the onion a little bit and say, well, can I start to think of a, a longer-term future? And that's really what it came down to. For me, it was the cancer for me made me very short, short-sighted and not able to really see into my future so much. So I think once I became, in my mind, safe enough out of diagnosis to start, I, I felt like I could start exploring what those other options were. So you have a functional uterus, but you decided at the end not to carry yourself but to go the surrogacy option, what what prompted that specific decision? 
Um, I talked to my oncologist. I went met with a reproductive endocrinologist. No one could tell me that it was unsafe to carry, um, but no one could tell me that I would be fine either. And I think it just became, for my husband and I, do I, do I, I was stable. I had been stable at that point for about six years. And I knew that there was a potential that, you know, you're, you're messing with my hormones and I just felt like my body was doing well on its own and I just didn't want to throw a wrench in it. And, and how would it feel to me if God forbid I were pregnant and something were to happen? So for me, it was a safer bet to just take my, take myself out of the equation. Um, right. And we'll be speaking with ladies later on in the show who had that exact same experience and chose to get pregnant mm-hmm. despite the risk. Absolutely. So it's a very, it's, had, a, it's a complimentary top conversation to your decision. Yep. Um, so let's talk about what is surrogacy. What is surrogacy? So gestational surrogacy is when a woman, a gestational carrier, is implanted through IVF with embryos that are created by either the intended mother and father or an egg donor, and in my case, an egg donor and intended father, and implanted through IVF into a gestational carrier who is your surrogate till birth, and then your child is born and... There you go. Then and the have, diapers ensue. They so, did. So they have. is there any demystifying that surrogacy needs, or it's like a proven, accepted science and the process, and it's safe and trusted? So there's there's so many facets of surrogacy. You know, the um, and now that I'm I'm working in the field, I've just I've learned so much more. You know, the surrogacy is safe if you work with the right people. You need to have your wits about you and know where is it legally safe. Like in New York, where we are right now, it is not, um, you cannot pay someone to carry your child. So you can't compensate them financially. Altruistically, if someone wants to come forth and just carry a baby for you, that's great. Yay. That right. works yeah. fine. <laughs> but if you, if they want, if you want to compensate them for it, that's not approved in the state of New York. So every state has different laws. Every country has different laws. So you really have to work with someone who knows. Um, so that's why I chose you need a lawyer when you go through this process? You need a lawyer, yeah. You need someone who understands surrogacy, family law, surrogacy law, who knows the differences in all these states and where is it safe and how can you be protected as the intended parent. So you're employed in the industry now by will of your experience, but how is it navigating, like where do you even go to start? The average, like, like you must have, Dr. Google, what do you do when you're looking to explore surrogacy? And this is where... Because, I mean, today people can call you now, but, like, mm-hmm. what did you do? I used Facebook um, <laughs> because I couldn't... I, I went to my oncologist first. That was... I said, you know, this. now I'm at this point where I'm starting to explore my options. Point me in a direction. And she couldn't. And she reached out to anyone she knew with Sloan, and they couldn't. And that's where, when you said to your point before about um, was there someone who talked to me about it, there is a position now, at least at Sloan, and I know a lot of the other major cancer centers that have a point person whenever a survivor comes in and is able to talk to them about their options. That person didn't exist, didn't have that title, didn't exist when I was going through everything. So I couldn't find it. So I actually put a post out on Facebook. Hey, anyone in my world know anyone who knows anything about surrogacy? And thankfully, I'd had a former colleague who had had his daughter through surrogacy. So he, we got together, we had drinks. He explained to me what he went through and, um, and points to me in a direction that I was able to get to the agency that we used. Wow. That's impressive. That's really incredible. I, I always wonder if I hadn't, if he hadn't, if I hadn't known him, if I didn't do that, how I would have got to this point, I don't know. Right. Um, but that's part of my work now, is I feel like there's a void here that people need this information and need to be able to 
to know that it's an option. So on the advocacy side of, of oncofertility, which is a, a wonderful word that was coined by Dr. Teresa Woodruff in Northwestern, oncofertility, you're taking two words together. It's almost a civil liberty that you you deserve. You have the right, not really civil right, to be a parent, and cancer shouldn't get in your way. But realistically, insurance doesn't cover surrogacy. Nothing covers surrogacy. It's a direct out-of-pocket expense because is it considered a luxury? Considered elective, right? Yes. Considered something that's yes. not a necessity. Right. So obviously you, you don't have to disclose you know, your costs, but is it safe to assume it's very expensive? It's very expensive. And it's labor-intensive, pun intended. And you need an attorney. And it, There's a lot of people And it took involved. you, what, a year, two years? It took us about 15, 13, 15 months. From start to finish, from researching and starting on starting on with our agency to birth of our son. Wow. Yeah. But is it worth it if you can pull it off? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's a lot of money. And I know when I talk to survivors who worry about how am I going to ever afford this, especially in the wake of medical bills and, and, and whatnot. Um, but when you're dealing with any kind of third-party reproduction, whether it's just going through IVF or egg preservation, you know, Using having to use frozen embryos, um, adoption. There's there's always a cost. There's going to be a cost associated with. It, unfortunately, right. Um, Are there any conversations happening at the legislative level about this being a reimbursable, uh, you know, um, cost covered maybe by the government Medicaid, you know, down the road? Was, if you're looking at the number of women diagnosed with cancer in their fertile years who face the possibility of never bearing their own children. It's a fraction of a percentage of women in the fertile years. So you're not looking at $3 billion in government funding to cover this. It's a, it's a tiny percentage. Is that something that's even happening or a conversation now at the state or national level? There is constant conversation that's taking place about where surrogacy should be legalized. Like, for example, I know in New York there's legislation that's being passed to try to get it legalized. I think it's coming down the pike. I don't know if that is something that's in the forefront right now in terms of getting insurances to cover such a thing. I know that IVF has come a long way yes. and that that cost, there is more of that piece that's being covered. And there's a lot of um, tax law that's taking place right now. Like I was able to see a decent return back, um, mainly for the medical piece of my right. process. Mm-hmm. But, and then where, where should it say, you know, should the surrogate, the, her fee be considered a medical expense? So it's, that is conversations that are taking place where you can see a, a a sizable amount back in a tax return. Is there a reason why a state like New York, a progressive democratic state like New York would, is this an ethics issue? Is this a financial issue? Why, why would it be illegal in this state? Well, cause, I mean, New York is, it's a pretty concern. I mean, we're here in New York city. I think we're a little jaded, but I think overall, New York the North be, of the Bronx, I suppose <laughs> can be a bit conservative. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, I just think it's, there are five states in the entire country that surrogacy is not legal in New York and happens to be one of them. Wow. Um, but I, I do believe change will come. I think with the legalization of gay marriage has greatly helped, and I, there is talk of it taking place right now. So the hope is in three to five years that there will be that change taking place. Well, isn't it true that the gay community are, are, are um, I would say, their customers, largely clients of the surrogacy industry? The, sur- the sur- surrogacy service industry, Correct. right? Because if they want to have a child, they have to go through surrogacy or adoption, or adoption clearly. Right. So let's talk through the company you now work for, Circle Surrogacy, which is one of the largest, 
I would say surrogacy providers, right? Is that the right language for that? Surrogacy agencies. So, thank you, agencies. Mm-hmm. And they do primarily cater to the gay community. I wouldn't say primarily. No? Okay. Nope. It used to be that our client base was primarily gay. However, over time, um, we're almost 50-50 heterosexual and gay. But were you the first cancer patient that came along? Or were they aware that cancer, the cancer community could potentially be almost clientele for them? They have had numerous cancer survivors that they helped. Um, and I, so I was not by any means the first. Um, but I do believe it is a, a market. It's an area where people, where we are gearing our efforts to do more outreach and let survivors know that we are here to help them and guide them in this process. Because And, and tell us more about Circle. How long have been around? Who's, what do they specifically excel in versus any other competitors, I suppose? So Circle is what we consider a full-service surrogacy agency, which means it has all the components of surrogacy under one roof. And for people like myself who felt comfortable kind of knowing there was a one-stop shop, um, that worked well for me as opposed to some people who arrange a surrogacy agreement can kind of have, you know, a lawyer over here, surrogate over there. And it was nice to know that everyone was working under one roof. So that's what sets Circle aside from other some other surrogacy agencies. Um, it's also, like you said before, one of the largest surrogacy agencies in the country. There are a few that compare in staff size. Um, we have a team of lawyers as opposed to just one lawyer. We have a team who can kind of manage and explore all the different facets of surrogacy. Um, we have a tremendous support staff, social workers, um, counselors, people that can provide emotional support not only to the surrogates but to the intended parents as well. I like to, And actually one of the things that I've just been um, granted the ability to start, which I'm really excited about, is a, a Skype support group for women who are becoming mothers through surrogacy who have had made this decision to become a parent this way because of some type of life-threatening illness. Many of them are cancer survivors. Not, well, I'm not only only doing survivors, but um, but I would say out of 13, about um, nine or 10 of them are cancer survivors. So I'm really excited about this type of support that we're now able to provide and I get to be a part of. So it's pretty amazing. Okay, last question. This is kind of a mulligan because I know the answer, but you were diagnosed with cancer. You lost your fertility and you are a success story for surrogacy. And now you work in the surrogacy industry giving guidance and support to women just like you were where you were 10 years ago. How does that make you feel? Oh, there's there's nothing better. There's just nothing better. Well, aside from my son and every little moment with him. Right. But, you know, I went into the social work field and I knew that I wanted to work with people and I, I was always um, passionate about connecting with others. But to know that my personal experience can lend itself to others and, I, you know, I just hopefully give other, other survivors hope that there are alternative means to still becoming a parent, that you shouldn't have to lose everything to cancer is makes me very, very happy to be a part of it. Well, congratulations to you and your family. Thank you. We've been talking with Jennifer Rackman, tenure ovarian cancer survivor who became a mother through egg donation and surrogacy. She's now an outreach coordinator for the agency she used called Circle Surrogacy. Jen, thanks for joining us. You're going to stick around, right? Yeah, okay, absolutely. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, Kenny, now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. Matthew, we have some events coming up in Houston, Texas, Westminster, Colorado, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We have a Stupid Cancer Boot Camp in Montana, the whole state. The whole state. Yes. 
New York, New York, Raleigh, North Carolina, Anchorage, Alaska, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to host your own meetup, go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup to learn more. Cancer is lonely, and we've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by any cancer. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join our beta testing community and immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible gift of $500. All right, we've launched a news feed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. And cancer is expensive, so we're proud to announce cancermademebroke.org, a national partnership with Give Forward, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and the community wants to help you. Visit cancermaybebroke.org and learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. Is that kind of like working at a nonprofit made me broke? No, yeah, never mind. What? Hey, it's what? always hey. a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products. I feel like we should probably change that to nice and warm with all new products. Yes. And styles to choose from, we've got an awesome skateboard. And don't forget about Flip, the cancer bird, our latest plushy mascot. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And, and that, that is, is your stupid, stupid cancer, cancer news. All right, let's get to the rest of our show here. We are joined now by Shelly Nolan, mother, wife, business development professional, and writer. In April 2011, Shelly was diagnosed with acute, I'm not going to mess this up, promyelocytic leukemia. Oh, God help me. She's currently in remission and a patient at John Stewart Cancer Center. She blogs at ShellyNolden.blogspot.com. Joining her is Gina Shaw, a 10-year, another 10-year, a decade, breast cancer survivor and mother of three by birth and adoption, the author of Having Children After Cancer. That's the name of the show. That's so coincidental that you're here tonight. Please welcome Gina Shaw and Shelly Nolden. Shelly. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Oh, we're so excited, and believe me, we're really actually happy you're not here because you have a large family, I understand. Yes, and what if I were to go into labor right this moment? Well, we, we, we have um, Kenny. <laughs> oh, I am so glad I'm at home. We have Google. I'm not touching that or Shelly. <laughs> yes, and I just have to say I'm so pleased to be on with Gina because uh, – when I was released from the hospital, the first resource I turned to on fertility was Gina's books, her book, uh, Having Children After Cancer. So I even posted a blog or uh, a review on my blog about it. So very pleased to be on with you, Gina. Thank you. That's awesome. So we're talking about fertility. There's lots of different sort of permutations to how this happens. In Jen's case, she had a uh, lost her ovaries after surgery, didn't even have the option of bearing her own children. We've had experiences and spoken to guests on the show who've just chosen to have children during their chemotherapy, who've chosen to delay chemotherapy to have children, who've chosen to have children long after they're done with treatment, but maybe at risk to pass on genes or it might reactivate their hormones. So there's there's a lot of nuance here with your stories. So let's start with Gina, since you're the author here with a book. That's pretty impressive. Anyone write the book? So... (laughs) 10 years, again, we're celebrating 10 years. Congratulations to you. Thank you. So 11 years ago, life. Yeah. was fantastic. I was, uh, had just gotten married. I got married in uh, May of 2003. And so my husband and I, I was 30, uh, 36, almost 37. 30. Anyway, I was late 30s. And we 
spent our first year sort of having a wonderful you know, first year of marriage. And as we were coming around to our first anniversary, we were talking about, okay, it's time to start thinking about getting ready to have kids. And um, I had been kind of ignoring this little thing I was feeling in my in my right breast and finally couldn't ignore it anymore. And long story short, it turned out to be uh, stage 2B breast cancer. It was in my lymph nodes. I ended up having uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and uh, lumpectomy and radiation. The full you know, no the mastectomy. Full, the full Monty. No, I did not have a mastectomy. Okay. Uh, I kind of just wanted to keep the girls. <laughs> I don't know. You know, they tried to kill me, but I, I decided to keep them anyway. And so then, ensuing that you're you're fine now, but what was the path between like the lumpectomy and the you know, we, we like to say that when the doctor says you're cured your home, that's not the end of the story. Clearly not the end of the story. Totally not the end of the story. Well, and I was, when, when I started treatment, I, as I said, I did neoadjuvant chemo, so they were going to start the, the stuff that was potentially going to impact my fertility pretty quickly. And I also, like, like Jen, was treated at Sloan. And my uh, medical oncologist sat me down and said, well, here are your options. We know that, you know, you're looking forward to your first anniversary. You're getting ready to have kids this is your option for preserving embryos. Do you want to go ahead and do this? We can accelerate your your menstrual cycle with meds that will not mess with your hormones. Do you want to do it? And I said, no. I just, I wanted to get this treatment thing started. I wanted to get the cancer out of my body. I didn't want to do, you know, I was doing MRIs and PETs and MUGA scans and this and that and the other. And I just, I didn't want any more of it. I wanted to start the treatment, get this thing out of my body, and be done. And it, to be honest, my husband, if he's listening, it was probably one of the worst arguments of our early married life. Right, because he was, he was very unsure that he was ready to give up on the idea of potentially having biological children. And I, you know, it was a, which is more important in my life, or, you know, so it was, right. you know, he was... Over so he the, felt like he was being robbed of an opportunity. Sure, well, and, and we both did. Right. But, you know, so ultimately it was my decision, and he kind of had to step aside, and he did. And, I mean, he was I, – I, I am the luckiest woman in the world to have been through cancer with him and parenting and everything else with him. But, you know, he really saw me through an incredibly tough year. And I would, I would add that tonight we are joined by three strong women with three strong men who join them and stick with them by their side the entire time. I'm thinking that's more common than people tend to give guys credit for. And – that's just my two cents based on the people. I, so I mean, I want to believe that, I guess. I've heard some sad stories at, at Young Survival Coalition meetings, to be honest, with right. you, that, that, that reminded me how lucky I was, make me go home and say, hey, thanks, honey, I'll rub, rub your back. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Shelly, um, you were pregnant when you were diagnosed, and you have a, a, a fairly tragic beginning to this diagnosis. You Would you love to share that with us? Uh, sure. I was... Let's see. I, I I was I am fortunate enough to have one daughter. She was 18 months at the time, and I was five months pregnant. We went in for a routine ultrasound, that you know the standard 20-week body scan, and the uh, technician told us there was no heartbeat, which of course was very devastating. And our doctor sent us to an abortion clinic to have the baby removed after some testing, and it was at that abortion clinic where they determined that I was not producing platelets which is not a great thing when you're about to have a surgery. So I was rushed to the ER um, to have the procedure there with blood transfusions on hand. And then, you know, as we were mourning the loss of this baby afterwards, we're already thinking, okay, how many months do I have to wait until we can try again? And 
you know, mourning but trying to move forward. And it took a week then for them to uh, diagnose me with leukemia, and it was the leukemia that had killed their baby. So when you, when you talk about, you know, as people think about fertility when they're first diagnosed with cancer, that's all I was thinking about because I was still in this mourning stage. So the the type of leukemia you were diagnosed with, I actually have never heard of this, although you, I think you've been on the show before. Maybe I, I've probably read your bio at some point in time, so this sounds familiar. But acute promyelocytic. Can you just pronounce that for me because I feel stupid. Promyelocytic. I still can't spell it. <laughs> It's, uh, it prevents your platelets from maturing. So if you don't have mature platelets, you're not able to clot. So the most dangerous time for me was that first week when basically I had no no platelets, and they were afraid that I would bleed out internally. And I was actually told that I would I might not make it through the week. And my daughter was not allowed in the hospital because if she so much as bumped me or if I bumped my knee on the side of, you know, on the guardrail on the hospital bed, bed, I could bleed out internally and die. And so, I mean, there was no possibility to do any sort of egg harvesting or anything like that. And in fact, any time I asked about fertility, the focus is always, let's just keep you alive. Yeah, I've heard that many times, myself included. And uh, so of the the ladies joining us on the show tonight, you are the one that had a child prior to getting diagnosed and a baby at that 18 months old. It must have been, I mean, again, our show is about young adult cancer. This is an issue facing women in their fertile years, which are typically young. This is not a story of a seven-year-old woman getting isolated from your baby, not being able to spend as much time with, with, uh, is it, I'm sorry, is it him or her? It's a her. It's a her, you know, being just being apart, having to go through this this unbelievable challenge, when all you want to do is just be there for her. Right. It was it was very difficult. I spent about forty nights in the hospital. I think I saw her a total of two hours during that time, and so I would look forward to to visiting with her. But then the visits would be half an hour. My husband would have to put toys on her lap to get her to even come close to me. Because keep in mind. You know, I'm now bald, I have a a face mask on, I'm connected to a machine. So it's like I needed that time with her, but every time a visit would end, I would just go back to my room weeping. And couple this with the fact that I actually was going through uh, postpartum depression because I'd gone through a labor and delivery of a baby. So, but I just was telling her last night, um, as I was feeling uncomfortable from this pregnancy, that she was the bright spot. And all of that, despite how hard it was being away from her. And by the time I got home, she had stopped asking for me. I mean, I was, I'm so blessed to have had her as, and, all, and all that happiness as I was going through treatment. Well, again, finding the silver lining, and, and it's, a, it's a beautiful way to get that done. Uh, Gina, you, you um, kind of wanted to have children right away, in a sense, but yet this discussion you mentioned with your husband, precluding that, you adoption pretty quickly afterwards, correct? Very quickly. I mean, I was I was in my late 30s at that point when I finished treatment. I was like 30, coming on 39, 38, 39. And, you know, I knew that whether I was going to potentially someday ever be able to carry a child or adopt, you don't want to be, you know, too old before you start pursuing this process because it can take a long time. And I had no idea how long it was going to take. 
So we literally, I finished radiation in December, and we started the paperwork for um, a domestic adoption in February of 2005. And it was about a year's worth of back and forth one agency that was ended up not being the best agency for us, a couple of failed matches, some really heartbreaking situations with, with uh, women who chose to parent, you know, when we really were thinking it was going to be, this was going to be the time. And then um, February of 2006, uh, we were there in the room when our beautiful now eight-year-old daughter was born and we were there with, with her birth mom. And um, she's actually visiting right now. I don't know if they're listening, but she's actually at home with my kids and my husband oh, awesome. uh, and her husband now. And uh, we've had a great open adoption relationship with her ever since. And uh, it's really, it was incredible heartache and difficulty. And there were days when I curled up on my office floor and threw things at the wall and screamed, I'm never going to have a child. This is never going to happen. But it all worked out the way it was meant to work out. And yeah, it's great. Is there a reason you chose adoption versus surrogacy? Was that an option or a conversation or not even a thought? Adoption, and I, I think Jen will probably bear this out, is, is somewhat, well, it, it's certainly less expensive in most cases. Um, and it, it wasn't something, it was something that seemed more complicated to me. There was much more information about adoption that was out there. We considered international adoption, which back then was a little bit easier than it is now for cancer survivors or non-cancer survivors, international adoptions got a lot harder um, recently. And we decided, I really, really, I did not know that later I would be able to go on and have biological children. I really wanted the experience of parenting a newborn. I wanted to hold my newborn and rock them to sleep and, you know, have all of those firsts and see all those things happen. And that was domestic adoption. So that's, that's why we chose to go that route. And going back to Shelly, Shelly, you were told pretty much out of the gate that it would be okay for you to have children again just six months after the treatment, but your treatment kind of wrecked you. You had cardiomyopathy and all these incredibly acute chronic issues that affected you. Can you talk us through that? Right. Well, I had a total of two and a half years of treatment. Um, I have risk of cardiomyopathy. I don't have it. It's one of the things I have to monitor during this. But, um, you know, when you're mourning the loss of losing a baby and someone tells you you have to wait three years to have children, and that sounds so, um, it, it's just so tough to think that that was so hard for me when I hear so many other stories about women who can't have children. My heart just goes out to to everyone who's listening who's not able to, and I'm so sorry for you. Um, but at the time, it seemed so far away, and of course, I was very eager to make it happen once we finally uh, were through all the chemo and even my daughter was asking when she could have a little brother or sister, and we'd say, we can't until mommy's done taking the medicine that's killing the tiny bad guys. Um, and then, you know, we we were prepared for it to take very long, and it happened very quick. And again, I should be so, I should have been so happy it happened quickly, but guess what the, you know, early symptoms of pregnancy are? Nausea, fatigue, discomfort right. after going through three years of chemo. It was a little little bit of a shock to my system to be back in that same place, but but obviously a very good thing. Clearly, and, and you know, the emotional roller coaster of having gone through this process and then happily getting pregnant, it's supposed to be a time of great celebration, and, and as you're, you seem to be pointing out, it, it's very mixed emotions, of course. You're, you're thrilled on one end, but you're feeling symptomatic and you're 
I believe you're probably in like a very high risk category at this point, correct? That's right. And my husband and I both had a lot of anxiety early on. Um, you know, I actually, cancer patients talk about having scan anxiety where they don't want to go in for their, uh, to, see, to check their remission results. And I, we, we hated every single doctor's appointment. I wouldn't want to come. I would reschedule them. We actually skipped the first ultrasound because, you know, with the last baby, the ultrasound is what started my cancer, or not started it, but that's what began the cancer journey. So we were afraid of going into the doctor and hearing bad news, and, and we were actually very hesitant to even tell our friends that I was pregnant because the natural reaction is, oh, congratulations. Well, yes, that's, that is a natural reaction for you know most of the world who's never been through cancer and never found out about it because they lost a child. For us, it almost felt like it would be jinxing us to have people tell us congratulations because you know, at the time, we still had you know, 26 weeks to go in which I could relapse, something could happen to the baby. and But so now that uh, we're getting into the final weeks, it's finally starting to, to feel real. And now we actually have to come up with some names. <laughs> yeah, the good problems to have. What's a name for right. the baby? When do you do? Uh, November 6th, so I'll be 37 weeks on Thursday. That's awesome. We're really happy for you. Thank you. Um, it's always good to have happy endings at the end of uh, such challenging journeys in fertility. Let's spend the next couple of minutes talking about good news. Like, what's the progress? Women, all right, so Shelly was, uh, I'm sorry, what year? It's uh, 2011. You were 2004. Right. You were 10 years ago. So, so there's been a lot of change, even from Shelly's perspective, but it's 2015 almost. And, uh, Jen, you, you were very heavily involved in the technology of reproductive rights. Um, I know your your book discusses all the disclosures and, and the work that we do on behalf of Anchor Facility. Um, I'll just start off by saying that I was in Colorado um, on a business trip recently, and I visited a reproductive clinic out there. And they were telling me that we're just a few short years away from being able to harvest ovarian tissue yeah. and sort of cure it in a jar so you can harvest the follicles to maturity at some point later on, and then you make the embryos at some point later in time. So it doesn't even matter where the cancer is in your ovary. They could find the cells that are healthy, scrape them out, stick them in a jar. You get the hysterectomy or you take your ovaries out, but you could still bear your own children at some point because they can curate the cells. To me, that's like science fiction, but that's yeah. really happening, right? Yeah. Well, they've been doing experimental, there have been pregnancies resulting from harvested ovarian tissue already. It's still considered highly experimental, but and it, and it, I don't know how many of those have actually been in cancer survivors, but it's definitely been successful. There have been babies born from removing strips of ovarian tissue and then re-implanting it later. Um, I know Teresa Woodruff at the Bianca Fertility Consortium has really been involved in that research. So that's really exciting. And Jen was mentioning before, a lot of these cancer centers now have fertility navigators. Uh, any one of you on the panel want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the more I do outreach, the more I've learned that many of the big cancer centers have them. And um, the Uncle Fertility Consortium, as you mentioned, if you go to their website, you can find an uncle fertility specialist in your area, even if your center doesn't have one. So you can, you know, typically protocol at this point should be someone's diagnosed in their early years and that they should, that conversation should take place. Yes. So that that's happening more and more. I think um, 
I'm so glad to hear that there's more advances in the medical field. I think my concern is why aren't more survivors taking advantage of the preservation methods? Because that's not keeping up with the pace. But is it awareness of? Is that it? The awareness is increasing. There are conversations that are happening more and more frequently. But survivors aren't, aren't, there's a statistic that was put out last year by the Oncofertility Consortium where it's only about like 13% or something Mm -hmm. are actually going forward with preservation um, methods after advised. So there's a lot of work to still be done. Um, so but it's still progress. Option. The needle's moving slowly, but it's moving. Yes, indeed. Yes. So let's talk about your book. Apparently you're <laughs> helping a lot of people without realizing it. Well, I, I hope so. It, it really, it was, uh, no pun intended, a labor of love. <laughs> um, and it really, what it is, is intended to be a, a, a guide to everybody's options for uh, having a family after cancer, looking at um, fertility preservation options prior to treatment, what are your odds of being able to get pregnant after treatment if you were not offered fertility preservation, adoption, surrogacy, embryo adoption, from both the male and female perspective? It, it explores it a lot more on the women's side because we have a lot more to think about and a lot more struggles. But men do have to, you know, explore. It's, 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 a bigger, it, it's not just as simple as, you know, going with the video or a magazine and, and, and you know, a little cup and then coming out always. You know, you don't. In our defense, <laughs> as simple as the problem is, <laughs> it's not that simple when you're going to be dead in six months. Well, that's true. But that pales in comparison to having body parts removed. So I have utmost empathy. Well, and you also, you know, you, you should to, to maximize the amount of, of sperm that you've harvested to be able to, to use later, you should have at least two visits with a certain amount of time in between them. And sometimes when you're in a really acute stage with a, with, a, with a leukemia or fast-moving blood-borne cancer, you don't necessarily get that time. Right. So it can be a real, you know, a real challenge for guys, too. It's, this isn't to minimize at all. This is a big deal for, for men as well as women. Well, I mean, for us, attitude is everything in those situations, mm-hmm. and it's very hard to, to maintain the attitude you need to produce what you need to produce right. when you're under such duress. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's you know. more, it's, it's surgically, you, yes. you get it done, and exactly. it doesn't matter. Right. So what inspired you to write the book in the first place? Obviously sharing your story to help other women, but... Writing a well, book is a big undertaking. Well, I, I am a writer. I'm a health and, and science writer, and that's what I, what I do and have done for, you know, the past 15 years or so. And I had always, you know, dreamed of writing a book, and, and I think it was Toni Morrison that said, write the book that you wanted to read that wasn't there. And this was the book that I wanted to read when I was diagnosed that didn't exist. That there, I wanted a book that had the scientific perspective and the doctors and and the experts from adoption agencies and all of that. But I also wanted something that talked about the perspectives of other cancer survivors and how they had gone about it. And I, when I was doing all of my research, I went on to the Young Survival Coalition forums and to different other different online forums, just kind of trying to piece together. And back then there was a lot less even even in the online forums for where fertility was focused on. So I'd find these little conversations here and there and piece those together. And so I said, okay, I'm going to write the book that wasn't there and, and, and pull that together. Shelley, you've been blogging for quite a while now, um, and, and you, you're very articulate in what you write. How has it been for you to get into that? I mean, because you were diagnosed in, in the age of blogging. A lot of us had to learn how to blog when blogging <laughs> became invented. You know, was it a guide for you? Did it help you vent? I mean, again, a lot of your posts are incredibly provocative. Yeah, I've I've actually done some research on it as well and read several books about the benefits of creative writing in terms of your, you know, mental state. And from what I've learned, 
positive creating writing has long-term benefits. The venting they've shown has not actually improved your mental state over time, which is a little bit surprising. So, the, so throughout my years of treatment, and initially, it really was kind of a uh, very cheap form of therapy. But also, when you know you have the whole shows on chemo brain, and it's, I think a lot of cancer patients kind of go through PTSD. You're trying to remember what happened. A lot of it is just this haze when you try and look back, and now is the time when I'm really trying to process what's happening. And, you know, I turned to my husband the other day. I'm like, you know, that night I was in the ICU. I'm like, were you there that night? And so I'm, I'm going back to these memories. And so I think that the writing, whether it's in a journal for yourself or the blogging, is incredibly important, not just from a therapeutic standpoint, but then later on when you're when you're revisiting the experience and trying to, you know, sort it out. That's kind of disappointing that venting is bad for you. I know. I think you've got to do some of it anyways, but it doesn't, it's, I think without interpreting it or spinning it in a way that kind of moves you forward in a more positive direction, I think it's just reinforcing negative feelings, or at least that's what I've read from some, some studies. So let's get to some some basic myth questions that I think the three of you could chime in on very well. Um, is it safe to get pregnant after cancer? Usually, yes, but not always, yes. So um, it's highly individualized, but yes, is there a science behind the oncofertility component of this at this point that's become a standard? Um, one of the biggest, and as a breast cancer survivor, which certainly that was the piece that I knew the most about and what I've done with a lot of research about, you would think, biologically speaking, hormones, cancer, a lot of breast cancers, although mine was not, mine was not uh, hormone positive, I was HER2 positive, but many breast cancers are hormone positive, you would think, okay, bad thing, more hormones, pregnancy, feeding hormones in breast, bad thing. But to date, all of the good quality research that's been done on pregnancy after breast cancer uh, seems to indicate that there is no additional risk, even in women who had ERPR-positive cancers. Mm-hmm. There have even been studies that have indicated that women who get pregnant after breast cancer have a better outcome, but there's a question of whether that's sort of the healthy survivor bias as to you know what, what that means. But generally, there's not any indication that it's not safe to get pregnant after breast cancer. Um, broadly speaking, I think that's the case with most other cancers, in which it's possible to become pregnant afterward. I, I, I don't know, Jen, if you know of other... Well, let's say, you know, pregnancy has so many health benefits to it, and mm-hmm. it actually, you know, can yeah. fight against other cancers, you know, yeah. different types of cancers. Right. So there's so many, you know, cost-benefit analysis, you know, <laughs> um, that's true. you know, how to look at it. But I feel like there... I don't think this is a question, but I think every patient is different, and talk to your doctor and talk yes. to a reproductive right. endocrinologist, preferably an oncofertility specialist, it's so important. So we have right. It's it's an issue for the mothers, that. but it's also an issue for for the babies. Um, and you and, and assuming that you wait long enough afterwards, there have been studies done that the offspring of cancer survivors have um, no greater incidence of um, you know deformations or other problems. I know that some kinds of cancers or some kinds that have certain treatments may have greater risk of miscarriages. But in general, you know, if from what I've heard, if you're following the guidelines from your doctor of how long to wait, if you are fertile, that, you know, your baby's 
doesn't have any greater risk of being unhealthy, which is well, very great news. No, it is It is great news. I was, gonna, I was just going to say I find it fascinating. We have three very unique stories here tonight. We have adoption, surrogacy, and natural birth. I guess my question is, clearly this doesn't apply to natural birth, but is there a statute of limitations on when you can adopt or have a surrogate after cancer? Are you a risky person for that? Would they let you even? Well, there's really no law that says you can't adopt after X age. Um, adoption law in the United States, it's, a, it's kind of a patchwork. It's state-by-state state law, although there is some national law that governs it about placing babies from born in one state when you live in the other state and how you have to do all of that. But basically, it's up to if you're adopting domestically, it's up to the birth mom who is choosing the prospective adoptive parents because most of the time these days in the U.S., domestic adoption, it, it's, it's open. The, the birth mom has a choice in, in who's going to become the parent. And, you know, if she wants, if you're 50-something and she wants to choose you, then she chooses you. Um, what, I, what I said in the book, which I think is really important, is that it's important to be open with a prospective birth mother about a cancer history. Um, it can be tempting to try to hide it. You, ha- you have to reveal it in a home study, that, that you have to get a, a clean bill of health from your doctor to even go through a, a, uh, an adoption home study. But the birth mother doesn't see that usually. You put out this letter, dear prospective, you know, dear expectant mother, we are this wonderful couple that has everything in the world to offer your child, and here's why you should choose us. Somewhere in there, you need to say, and we've been through this, and I, I talked to some, some great adoption social workers about this, and you can basically explain that a cancer history is not a negative. It is a positive because you have been through the most difficult circumstance that anyone can imagine and you've come out the other side and you're stronger for it and no matter what your child may go through you can handle it because you've handled the worst thing there is and as this social worker told me most women who are considering placing a baby for adoption know the world is not sunshine and unicorns and puppies they know that people go through tough times right they don't want to hear you pretend that you're this perfect person they want to hear that you are real good people and you know maybe someone won't choose you but they might not choose you because your house is the wrong color to it. It, it, not to be shallow, but you never know what will make someone make a certain decision, but you you owe them the trust of telling them the truth about your cancer history, and if you explain it the right way, it's not a negative. I should also add, Gina, that you are kind of a hybrid. You you did adoption and you had natural birth. (laughs) So you have two beautiful children in addition to your adopted Yeah, I have three great kids. So was that a total surprise? or I, mean, I don't mean it in that sense, but like, were you shocked that you could carry a pregnancy? I was completely shocked that I could get pregnant. I really did not think I would be able to. What happened was when our daughter was about 15 months old, we were thinking we wanted to have another child. And at that time, the adoption agency we had worked with to adopt her was going through some difficulties they later shut down. And anybody who's been through adoption knows finding an agency to work with an agency that you trust is an enormous undertaking. And we just were thinking, oh, dear Lord, not again. We have to go through this whole process. And we said, well, while we're doing that, no one ever officially told me, no, you can't get pregnant. You are not fertile. Let's just try. Let's see. Get the whole big, fancy, clear, blue, easy fertility monitor from the drugstore, the big expensive one that you put the little sticks in every day. 
I was 40, and the first month of trying using that little sucker, we got pregnant, and that was my son, uh, who's now six. And then two and a half years later, not quite, no, not one and a half years later. Know your family, Dan. Know my family's age. Uh, when you have three children, you can't remember. Yeah. You know, I call the kids by the dog's names. Right. Um, we decided, let's. Maybe we want one more. Maybe let's just try one more time. And we were really, I mean, we were pushing it. That was crazy to, to think that we could, but it took two months of trying. And at 43, uh, I gave birth to our, our youngest daughter, who's now four. And yeah, like we, we love um, celebratory endings to massive challenges. Um, I, we're, 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 one more question for all of you to answer. Obviously, there are so many women out there who do not have an opportunity to adopt or do surrogacy or carry a child or, or get pregnant. And, and it's a shame that this happens. Hopefully it's going to happen a little less with these procedures. And, and, uh, and uh, well, what's your message to those women who are listening tonight? Well, they're lucky. You know, what do you, obviously we hear the emotion and what they're going to say and how they feel about this, but what would the three of you uh, talk to those women about? I would just say if there's a part of you in your heart that wants to become a parent to figure out a way there's always a way there's you know ways to figure out how to pay for it there's ways to figure out what your options are there's if if it's in your heart there's a way to make it happen um, so I would just say not to give up hope I, I would agree and that's actually I think the whole last section of my book is kind of a, a, a rant on that topic that, you know, we, if we've survived cancer, if we've fought our way through cancer, we certainly can fight our way against any of the obstacles that, that society or finances or whatever else is out there might throw up against our becoming parents. Because if, if, if you can get through cancer, you can, you can get through all of those things. And it's, it may be difficult. It may not be the way you pictured it when you were, 16 and imagining what your family was going to be like. It may be a lot harder. It may be require you to do things you never thought you would do in terms of asking people for donations or whatever you might need to do, but it's, it's, it's worth it. It's worth the fight and, and you can do it. And Shelly, final thoughts. Yeah. I would just add to that, that, you know, is our society places such an emphasis on having children and, you know, you walk into a grocery store, oh, do you have any kids? Are you going to have another child? I just say that there's a lot of ways to fill your heart with love. And, you know, I, my heart goes out to those who can't have children, but that doesn't mean that your love, your life can't be filled with love and you can't find other ways to, to fill that gap. It doesn't necessarily have to be a small children. It could be you know, your brother's child or just other things that you find rewarding in life and that, you know, having a child doesn't have to be the, the be-all and end-all. And that's something I was coming to grips with, with when I thought maybe I wouldn't be able to have a second. But there's just a lot of ways to find love in this world. Well, I can't thank you all enough. This is obviously a very emotional, a very heated uh, discussion in the young adult cancer world, and, and thankfully we are making progress. Definitely not where we'd like to be, but better off than where we were. I think I said that right. So Shelley Nolden, uh, blogger, writer, author of a blog. Is that a thing? Yes. Shelley Nolden, blogspot.com. Gina Shaw, author, writer, uh, having children after cancer on Amazon. On Amazon. On Amazon. Noble, having children after cancer. Jen Rackman, 
from Circle Surrogacy. Ladies, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All righty. That's our show. Time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 323rd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Smoking a stick. That stupid cancer. We'd like to thank our guests once again, Jennifer Rackman, Tina Shaw, and Shelley Nolden. Next week's broadcast author, Mark Waldman. Join us for an exclusive 30-minute interview with provocateur Mark Waldman, author, lecturer, and one of the world's leading experts on communication, spirituality, and the brain. Yes, as we discuss relationships between mindfulness, cancer, and that little box of gray matter atop your eyebrows. Survivor Spotlight on blogger Lisa Bonchek adams Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our host here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Survivors over 65 We're all veterans of a battle And the world of us more in this world